Hi, this is Savio. I've been seeking answers to some of life's most perplexing questions my entire life. In 2014, I was diagnosed with stage three cancer. And ever since, I realized my calling existed outside of what I knew to be familiar. This podcast is home for survivors like myself and those who yearn to build resilience in their mindset and live their best life. In season three, the show includes a mix of coaching sessions followed by interviews with those from all walks of life who have been successful in the wellness, business, media, and travel industries. The intent is to show the human experience in its rawest form so that others may glean insight. Nothing is rehearsed. As a board-certified wellness coach, number one best-selling author, and syndicated columnist, my job is to ask the deep questions of those trying to make sense of their place in this fractured world. I believe life speaks to us in different ways. Many of us listen, but don't know how or where to begin. As someone who has crossed the bridge between life and death, I say simply, begin where you are now and get busy living. If you liked today's episode, I would appreciate it if you could share it. Be sure to tag me at The Human Resolve so I can reciprocate in kind. So without further ado, welcome to The Human Resolve Podcast. Today's podcast guest on resilience is CEO of Concentric and retired Vice Admiral of the United States, Mike Lefevre. As Mike states, that's probably one of the biggest things of the leadership trait, to be self-aware, to know your own strengths and your own weaknesses. But the idea of knowing what triggers you when you're in a stressful environment, to understand what those triggers were and how do you then cope with that? And then the last one that kind of relates to relationships and that is staying connected. How are you? Savio, thanks for having me on. This is great. Uh, I'm Mike Lefevre. I retired out of the Navy after 38 years as a vice admiral. I was fortunate enough to uh, lead at all levels, uh, graduated from the Naval Academy and was a surface warfare officer with men's ship driver uh, throughout my career, had command of a ship, a squadron, a strike group. And then my career took a little detour because I went in and led um, this large humanitarian assistance disaster relief in Pakistan in 2005 and six. And I say, well, no kind, he goes unpunished after seven months came out, um, but then was sent back to Pakistan to be the defense representative for the Department of Defense of the US government there in Pakistan from 2008 all the way through 2011 in the bin Laden raid. And then uh, retired out of the National Counterterrorism Center as the director for strategic operational planning. Since then, I have a passion for, for leadership and have done some payback work for all the wonderful experiences I had with the U.S. government. I'm on, I do uh, support. I was work with the Crystal Group, uh, which was a leadership and consulting firm. Had my own leadership company, did some work as a cybersecurity, and now I'm CEO of Concentric, which is this great company out here on the West Coast that does uh, security consulting and risk management. Wonderful, Mike. So you and I were connected because you were so kind to contribute to my interview series with Authority Magazine, uh, Rising Through Resilient, How to Be Resilient During Turbulent Times. And what I found really intriguing and profound is this idea of self-care, like you name it as your number one yes. priority. Can you give us more in information and context around that? Yeah, because I think how you show up as a leader is so very important. And so for me, the self-care was being rested, being prepared, being mentally ready to be able to support and lead the, the folks around you. 
because as a leader, you're always on stage. You're never you're never off you're ne never off out of anybody's view. So every everything you do, how you respond, how you re re you know report yourself or lead others is so vitally important. So for me, self-care was really taking care of yourself because many times we get so absorbed in the moment that we get so self-absorbed and we forget about taking care of yourself and realizing that over time that takes a toll and it makes you more diminished as in the ability of what you need to lead us, particularly through crises or, or what have you. For me, it's a kind of a daily workout to get moving, uh, get my mind. I call it my mental health break because it just, you know, sometimes some of my good ideas come then <laughs> that people are, hey, what do you think about this morning? But anyway, but yeah, self-care is absolutely number one. In the beginning, you alluded to a little bit of your background in national security, but give us more context. You were vice admiral and you graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy. Any nuggets of information that those experiences taught you? Boy, it teaches you to always uh, not be complacent about, you know, where you are in an organization, but always the ability to, to learn new things and to be able to develop and evolve. Uh, the different experiences I've had from the Naval Academy and different assignments, uh, the ability, the wonderful ability to travel the world, to learn about different cultures, to see other countries, to really appreciate what you had here in the United States, uh, but also the opportunity and challenges that were presented, things that you never expected. I often talk about, you know, expect the unexpected. You know, here I was, you know, for that example, the earthquake, I'm leading a strike group of 5,500 Marines and sailors, a major deployment, just finished a multinational exercise, was then, you know, going through the Straits of Hormuz to offload my Marines to, to work Fallujah for the famous election in 2005. And then all of a sudden I get called and says, hey, pack your bags, you're going to go to Pakistan to lead the earthquake relief effort for the United States. So here I was, you know, an admiral 700 miles from saltwater working in the Himalayas. I had a good buddy, General John Allen, used to say, oh, we need a good admiral in the Himalayas. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> what I also found really um, interesting was this idea of that those experiences crystallize your leadership philosophy yeah. and your, your naming and your roles in relationships and understanding of the environment. What has that garnered you over the years? those experiences? Um, I think it it re really helps solidifies what I found over time, you know, in, and as in all situations, you have a great opportunity to learn from great leaders that, you know, had led you and also from the bad leaders of what you thought worked or didn't work and what worked for you. And leadership is this interesting thing that everybody's different. And so there isn't one size that fits all. But what I found for the success that I enjoyed was Understanding this end game first, this what is your strategic end state of what you're trying to achieve? And that helps you align, you know, what you're doing, what you're pursuing to be able to do that. And it was a wonderful story. It was General Abizade that came ashore. I'm leading the earthquake. I'm, I'm ashore maybe for a couple of weeks, still assessing, bringing in lots of goes, hey, Mike, you're not going to be here forever. This disaster is not going to last forever. What's your exit strategy? <laughs> And I looked at him and said, holy smokes, boss, you know, I just got here. You know, I'm still flown in forces. But he said, well, here's what I need you to do, provide humanitarian relief, and we want to improve U.S.-Pakistan mm -hmm. relations. And so that's solidified because 
you know, I also discovered in these crises that there's phases to a crisis. There's, I call it four phases to a crisis. And as you get through the first kind of like the triage, the 911 moment, and then if you're thinking about phase two, about if you don't have the refugee camp set properly, if you don't get clean water, if you don't take care of some of the environmental things, that could lead to a, a, a whole new crisis, a dysentery or what have you. But then as you get into more of a steady state, trying to get everything back to normalcy, that focus on the end state was really uh, instrumental in making sure that all your actions and activities align to that goal. And so it really helped quite a bit in shaping that. And then the second big one is you do, you know, my command philosophy I used to say was, my top three priorities are relationships, relationships, relationships. You can have them in any order, but those would be the top three. <laughs> but it is so important because as you know, um, the success of so much stuff is developing relationships with, with individuals or others and treat it as a strategic partnership to be able to move out because it is so vital as we know today is, you know, this, people are really hungry after being locked down in COVID to go back and engage and then to be a part of folks. And then the last one is really understanding your environment, you know, taking a look around, what is it, you know, who are the power brokers? Who are the, what are the cultures, the significance of different things, how you show up, how you build your team, how you, you know, one of my big things is checking your ego, personal, professional ego at the door and about solving mission, but it is that understanding the environment so you know how to navigate that with great care as you understand all the different things that are going on that you're exposed to. You know, I look at, you know, again, Pakistan as an example or any other environment, a new job, it's just understanding, you know, who, what is it, what, how do things work and how do you able to maneuver in those spaces? In your current role as Concentric, you mentioned that you guys are the only green security company, which was fascinating to me. What led to the building of Concentric and where do you see the company going from here? Uh, Concentric's, you know, it was interesting, probably started out about 14 years ago. Our owner, wonderful guy, Roderick Jones, worked at Scotland Yard in counterterrorism and, and uh, met an American, married and came, moved to San Francisco with he and his family. Uh, but he bought the company some years ago and it was largely centered around ultra high net worth individuals and high net worth individuals and family offices. And we provided the full spectrum of security and professional from physical to cyber to background checks to due diligence to providing executive protection, drivers for their domestic or international travel, for their homes, for their businesses did background checks for individuals that they were gonna have on their staff because of the, the nature of their business. And then we also do a, an interesting thing regarding privacy that we call Eclipse, which is this idea of in today's environment, there's so much out there in digital dust online and in, and in media that we actually go through 314 different aggregate sites and are able to pull down information so that people might use in today's environment, anybody, even yourself, Savio, at, at this, you know, kind of like, hey, I heard Savio say this. And for some reason, whether it's an environmental, political and, or economic phrase, you know, somebody would take offense to that and in and, and some areas wants to do harm. And so they'll dox you or vox you or find out information that's sensitive and, and try to do nefarious things to you. So we try to help minimize that but we provide that security bundle. We also provide these executive risk assessments. We have this great company of, 
an eclectic crowd of backgrounds from a Navy Admiral to people that worked in counterterrorism to CIA, the Secret Service, the FBI, the police force. We have PhDs. We have folks that worked in joint special operations and foreign military operations. And it's this crowd that brings together kind of this second and, order, second and third order effect of evolutions that are ongoing, like stuff that's going on in Ukraine that's affecting supply management or gas flow or energy that could affect some of our clients as far as what would the impact that they're not thinking about that may impose. And so we approach it from a very different angle. And then we live our culture. Like you said, we're a green security company. We signed the Amazon Climate Pledge. We, we were offsetting carb, doing carbon offsets for travel and for some of our clients really appreciated that with, uh, with the environment. And we also have a neat thing that we have a, our own 501c3 called the 188 Foundation. And 188 number um, comes from the number of people we brought out of Afghanistan. Some of our clients asked us that some of their people, women reporters or human rights, were under attack by the Taliban as that was starting to shut down. So we were able to move them all the way up to Ma Sharif and, and literally on the last flight out, got 188 Afghan citizens out to go to Mexico to be supported by the International Relocation Committee, the IRC. So we named the fund after that because it was quite unique using philanthropy money with some unique skills that we had and had our capabilities on to be able to do that. And that, that has prompted, again, you know, we started in, in late March actually supporting Ukraine effort as well helping with humanitarian assistance, providing supplies to hospitals and, and other, as well as helping other businesses help extract some of their families from the war zone. So this has become also a, a great sense of pride for us, of us living our values and our culture of our company. So it's great to be a part of Concentric. Yeah. None of us um, are who we are unless we had help along the way. And I know you mentioned Admiral Tom Lynch as being one of the foremost people who really taught you this idea of knowing your people and taking care of them. How yeah. has that value been instilled in you till now? Well, well, it, it was it was learning, you know, here he was, he was one of my first commanding officers and I'm a brand new ensign right out of Naval Academy, still wet behind the ears, probably still am. <laughs> but it was, it was um, just wonderful about how to understand, to know your people, to understand what they like, what they believe in, how do you develop that relationship? But most importantly, they, to be genuine and, and in their care and understanding of how do you take care of these wonderful men and women that serve for you and serve their country at this point. And so that, that was a beauty be to be able to carry that forward. And it has always been a you know, hallmark, again, this idea of relationships that are so key. And it's, it is up and down. It's not only vertical, but horizontal across your organization or your, or your family or your network to be stay connected. So I wanted to come back to the focus of today's conversation. Mike, how do you define resilience? Well, resilience is that ability to deal with adversity and uncertainty and to continue to grow and, and expand during those very difficult times. And I asked a curious question in the article about courage. Do you see resilience and courage as one and the same, or do you see them as different? A little bit different. 
um, but similar in, in many ways. The resilience is the ability, as I said, to be able to, to navigate those very uncertain, chaotic times. And courage, in some cases, gives you the ability to be able to, to move forward and, uh, and, to, and to carry yourself forward. So they're interconnected, but they are slightly different in, in how you go about uh, dealing with that environment. In the piece, there was a question I asked about when you think of persons or person comes to mind when you think of resilience. I just loved how beautifully you expressed what's happening in the world right now. Healthcare workers, first responders, service providers, service members. I think that viewpoint is something that should be uh, honored and should be looked at with great sincerity. How do you view in general? Well, it's just you, you look at the incredible strain that the medical care system is under through COVID the stresses and strains. And those were the, you know, they were kind of the frontline workers in, in battling this uh, pandemic and how they, you know, with the information almost changing by the hour of what worked, what didn't work, how do you do it? What, how do you do with your controls? Where does it, you know, and it's marvelous at how they maintain the stamina to be able to all of a sudden flip a switch that was from, you know, intensive care units and, and elective surgery to full-on onslaught. This is a pandemic that we need to turn all our resources to be able to help those in need. And so you just got to marvel at that, along with the first responders that also were engaged in that, were usually the first folks on the scene or to be able to provide that sense of security in the environment to be able to do it. And then, of course, service members that, that near and dear to my heart that are serving overseas, away from their families, in very treacherous times, very um, difficult conditions, but still striving and supporting to allow us to enjoy our freedoms and democracy. We heard a lot from first responders and healthcare workers on the news, but I didn't really hear a lot from service members. What, what have you heard from them during this really tepid time that we're all going through? Well, they, you know, they had a, a dual-edged sword, you know, as you, as you know, when you go on these deployments, when you're gone, you know, you, you're on a mission, you're supporting, you know, national interests and, and, and national mission statement. But what's very difficult is you have to leave your family members and loved ones behind. And so the unknown, the fear of what they were experiencing in the pandemic, the, the situation of their, you know, significant others and loved ones and spouses, the now all of a sudden, how to, how to deal with, you know, maybe home care and child care and education while they're overseas involved in, in creating. And so those all factors that affect all the men and women that are, you know, serving in, in the many different locations of coping with all those unknown dynamics that, that you know, or potential harm to their, to their loved ones. And so it's an added, added strain in addition to the, you know, hey, we need you to do your job to be able to do the mission that we expect you to do as well. In the article I mentioned, uh, did someone ever tell you something was impossible? And you said, needless to say, the feedback was the stimulant to keep pushing forward. Like, what a great reframe that is. Um, how did you push forward? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it is funny. You know, when, when somebody kind of goes, oh, you're not going to do, you know, you're not going to make it through here. It's just kind of like, Oh, you! I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> I'm going to demonstrate to you, and you know, and it's part of that resilience. As we talked about, you know, the this self-talk to be able to, you know, take things bite-sized and say, "I'm going to get through this," and I'm going to, I'm going to, 
persevere and I'm going to show you what you potentially underestimated my abilities to be able to perform in these adverse conditions. Question about setbacks as well. You really spoke in such simple language about not being promoted and how that frustrated you. Um, what sort of allowed you to move past that challenge? Oh boy, that, that was a tough one. You know, as I said, you know, this was funny because it happened when I was over in the earthquake, you know, having many visits, but also um, in, in, a, in, a, in a weird way, almost one of the most personal and professional rewarding experiences being responsible for saving so many lives mm -hmm. and, and uh, becoming the benchmark for what humanitarian assistance disaster relief looks like. And then at the same time, hearing news that you were not selected for that next rank. And so, yeah, very, dis you know, as you can imagine, it was kind of like a heartbreak. Wow, I did, I'm doing all this. This is what I did throughout my career to achieve this milestone and, and be set up for this. And then, um, then you just kind of like, okay, again, this, you know, the resilience to persevere and kind of like, okay, um, what do I need to do next to be able to succeed and focus back on mission and succeeding in, in, the, in the roles and, and uh, being able to, to move through that. And there was like two key ingredients that I caught in the article that really was of great impact, in my opinion, was sort of this idea of humor and this idea of adaptability. Um, how are those two played a big role in your personal and professional careers? Yeah, probably big. The biggest thing is, you know, be able to adapt to the situation and really put it in perspective. You know, kind of what's really going on, and you know, sometimes you know we often say, "Well, this is a first-world problem." You know, when you, and you know, maybe the experience of seeing different cultures and countries and seeing some some really you know depressed areas or environments uh, that allow you to say, "Wow, look at these people," and and to be able to adapt to the changing situations. Humor is one of those that I think it, it maybe it's that you know a relief mechanism or whatever, but it used to get me in trouble because I would tend to laugh at some of the more more extreme stuff and, you know, maybe even, uh, you know, some, some humor, but it was, uh, it was a way to kind of just reframe the issue and kind of go, okay, this is what's happening. Let's, let's dispassionately look at it. What do we need to do? What are the steps to be able to move forward and, and, uh, and accomplish this? Because, uh, you know, you can easily get, brought down by, you know, understanding the, the, the amazing magnitude of the situation. I mean, like Pakistan, here was 70, when we finally, you know, realized that it was 78,000 people that died, 177,000 injured, and then there was three and a half million people homeless. And you look at the, you know, those incredible dramatic numbers and you kind of go, how am I going to fix this? You know, it's kind of that old adage that, you know, you can eat the elephant, but you got to take it a bite at a time. And so break it down, let's, you know, let's realign everybody, let's get them focused back to what the what the mission and the goals are and, and to be able to move out. Yeah, I think humor is an untapped, um, like superpower, quite honestly, because so my <laughs> book launched at the end of February and one of the, uh, so my book was, I interviewed 35 cancer survivors, told my own story as well. And one of them was a voice actor and he says he uses humor. He used humor during his cancer journey because that's yeah. all he knows. And it lightened the mood and it also brought people together. So I love the fact that you mentioned that. Yeah. How about you? Did you use, I mean, uh, you know, your story is just fantastic as well. And, and it's just, 
marvelous. I used, I used everything. Yeah, training. I used everything I could. <laughs> <laughs> I used humor. I used extras. I, I used everything I could, <laughs> quite oh, honestly. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. you're a role model. And, you know, it's, you, you kind of look at, you know, you could have easily thought, oh, my goodness. And yet you, you know, you kind of beat the odds and said, nope, this isn't going to happen. You know. I beat the odds, and I said if I if I continue beating the odds, I was going to tell the story of others who who did the same, and so here I'm yeah. doing what I can for the cause. Absolutely, um, in, that's marvelous. Thanks, Evan. Thank yeah. So, in going back, uh, so what are some of your steps? How someone can be more resilient? Oh, yeah. I kind of characterize them as four. We talked about one already, and that was the self care. I think that's the number one. Number two is the self talk. You know, because um, sometimes in uncertain environments, we tend to go to the dark side. And so you got to be able to visualize and see what the future looks like at success and don't let yourself get taken down into those different things. Um, you know, the, the other part is this ability of the self-awareness. Um, because I think you know, that's probably one of the biggest things of the leadership trait to be self-aware, to know your own strengths and your known weaknesses. We all have them in mine. My list of weaknesses are quite long. Uh, and so you surround people with you to fill it in so you don't have any holes. But the idea of knowing what triggers you, what, you know, when you're in a stressful environment, what is it that, what are those signs? You know, as I said in the article, I had this wonderful pleasure of working with Liminal Collective uh, and uh, Dr. Andy Walsh, who worked at Red Bull and others. And it's, you know, a simple technique. You know, we actually put folks through, I, you know, supported some of these uh, exercises where we take people out of their comfort zone and put them under stress. For what reasons? To understand what those triggers were and how do you then cope with that? For me, you know, as I said in the article, it's as easy as knowing when I feel my tension and heart rate and just simple box breathing to be able to relax, take a few moments to get composed and, and to be able to do that. And then the last one that kind of relates to, you know, kind of the relationships and that is staying connected. I mean, as you know, what you, what you went through, I mean, those friends, family relationships that you had that gave you the strength and power and compassion to be able to get through some her heroic, you know, odds against you, but it helped you so much. And so those are the four key things that I find for resilience to help, help me adapt, help me to deal with that ambiguity and uncertainty and chaos that we are often exposed to. So Mike, I would love to transition now into what I call brainstorming. I asked a curious question in there, if you could create a movement, what would that be? And yours was really simply critical thinking, especially in today's world. Yeah. Um, I just thought maybe you and I can just discuss that a little further and see if we could, I don't know, somehow move it just an inch <laughs> further oh, than what cool. it is now. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, because I, I really see uh, I'm concerned about the misinformation and disinformation, some domestic terrorism. Maybe it's from my background at National Counterterrorism Center, but also the seeing that and also seeing the unfortunate of the wonderful thing about what we are here as America, this blend of incredible cultures and backgrounds and experiences. And and we've seemed to getting more polarized in our views to to these extreme points on the curve, when I really believe that there's so many of us that are, you know, when you get down to it and have a, an, an honest 
conversation, the critically thinking about what we can value, what information, what's true, where can we find common ground to be able to advance and where we don't and figure out how to way to solve it. And so it's it's really a passion for me. I, I worry as I as I watch the you know the energy or voices of the opposite sides start start uh, increasing, and it uh, kind of defeats some of the values that we started as a country. One thing that comes to mind is this idea of. I feel like it's either you're in two camps or you're not in any camp at all. And I wish yeah. there was a way to have a very compassionate understanding or yeah. debate, a healthy debate, whatever the case may be, so that the information is, is presented without individuals thinking there's an agenda attached to the information Correct. that's being you know, presented. Yeah. I know that's hard, but um, just from my perspective, I just wish there was more of that. Because I mean, I, I have to admit, I have family members who are on opposite sides of my own philosophy. I learned a long, long time ago from a really good friend who says we have to have unity through diversity. We have to find a way to unify right. even though we differ. Um, so yeah, that's that's the only thing I can really think of is oh, to have a I, healthy I, debate of ideas and exchanges, which is fine yeah. as long as there's some general rules. We don't act violent. <laughs> we don't put each, you know demean Correct. each other. Those things have to be agreed upon. But other than that, it's a it's a context of information. So, well, I think it is. It's that civil discourse, and I love your uh, ability. You know, I have a. I thought it was. Um, um, but it's actually a general patent quote that's, that basically says when two people are thinking alike, somebody's not thinking. And I love that from the value of it is truly the diversity of thought that allows you to come to a better solution. And about being able to have that, that civil discourse to be able to do it. I was at the, I'm a member of the Cypher Brief, which is a collection of professionals that, that had national security background. At one of the conferences, it was a wonderful saying, you know, I think it was uh, the former uh, head of the defense ODNI, General Clapper, that says, right now, unfortunately, we have a problem of truth decay. It was kind of funny. It was a play on words. But he says, you know, we right now, because of this polarization, there are some that we can't even agree on facts and truth, which is kind of, uh, which is a difficult one because, you know, at least to understand some of the basic foundations that you're all coming but there is a lot of perspectives out there and, and you know where you sit, where you belong, but the ability to get to a common ground, I think is key. Like you said, critical thinking, civil discourse, being able to tolerate and to understand the values in different cultures and to see where those, all those experiences is what makes us better. Yeah, 100%. It's, uh, yeah. it's something I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting to see uh, further emboldened in our world. <laughs> Uh, I'm being yeah. optimistic because that's the type of person. Oh, I'm always an optimist, <laughs> probably to a fault. <laughs> so, um, Mike, tell my audience and listeners out there how they can find out more about you and your work and your company. Oh, I'm on LinkedIn at Mike Lefevre. Um, I do have a, a you know a Twitter handle. It's uh, Mike Lefevre one. Uh, but also, um, just reach out. You know, you can find us at Concentric.io. And uh, there's a way to contact or if there's anything I can help with. I love the ability to help and support others. And if there's anything I could do, I, I enjoy that. Again, all about relationships and, and I think uh, the value of helping each other. Okay, wonderful. Mike, this has been fantastic. I, Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. 
Uh, Sabia, thanks so much. Really sure. appreciate it. And, and your marvelous story as well. So, oh, so thank, thank you for having me. I'm sure. very humbled. I really hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast episode of The Human Resolve. If you feel that others may enjoy this episode as well, please share socially at The Human Resolve. You can also visit my website, thehumanresolve.com, where I offer one-on-one coaching sessions, a subscription to my weekly newsletter, where I probe into the secrets from living smarter to feeding your three brains, and my author website, isurvivedcancer.co, where you can purchase my number one best-selling book, I Survived Cancer and Here's How I Did It. 35 cancer survivors share their journey and view the book trailer, including excerpts from the book. If you could also help me out and give me a review and rating on this podcast platform, because I do care what you have to say, I would really appreciate it. Now, get out there, my friends, and get busy living.